turning your Bibles with me again to uh, Revelation chapter 20. Uh, as you're turning there, I'd like to read you a quote uh, from Mr. Charles Hodge taken from his Systematic Theology. Uh, you can find this quote in Hassel's History in chapter 8, uh, page 261. <clears throat> Experience teaches that the interpretation of unfulfilled prophecy it ex is exceedingly precarious. The term precarious means unsure is what it means. There is every reason to believe that the predictions concerning the second advent of Christ and the events which are to attend and follow it will disappoint the expectations of commentators as the expectations of the Jews were disappointed in the manner in which the prophecies concerning the first advent were accomplished. Y'all catch all that? That was a long statement there. Um, in other words, trying to understand and interpret unfulfilled prophecy is difficult at best. The end of the world, the second coming of Christ, may surprise a lot of us in the way that it happens and the things that unfold in the same way that the first coming of Christ puzzled and disappointed the Jews in the first century. They were looking for the Christ to come in one way. He came in a completely different way. They were looking for Him to accomplish one thing. He accomplished something different. It, it's interesting to note as you, as you study the concept of prophecy and the concept of millennialism the, Jew, the Jews in the first century, the Jewish rabbis, had an understanding that when Messiah came, he would destroy Roman rule over the city of Jerusalem, and he would establish a kingdom, and he would reign there in Jerusalem, and peace would be on earth. That, that was their understanding of his bringing peace. Can you not see by extension that most people that hold to some sort of premillennial or postmillennial reign of Christ, it's the same thing. That Christ will come back to this earth, He will establish a kingdom, and He will reign down here, and there will be peace on the earth. One question I have about that is, is why are people so obsessed with Christ coming back here? In other words, why are they so obsessed with Him coming down here and doing something down here? Doesn't the Scripture point us not to looking down here, but to looking upward? In 1 Corinthians 15, I think, I think we read from this a few weeks ago. I can't remember. Uh, 
This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse uh, 23. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to this a little bit later. Uh, but he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. You know, verse 24 says, Then cometh the end. Now, do you all understand English? Most of you don't speak it, but at least I think you understand it. And you understand what the word end is. It, it, the end doesn't mean a new beginning. The end means it's over, right? Then comes the end, and look what this next phrase is, when he shall have delivered down the king. I read that, I read that wrong, didn't I? When he shall do what? He shall deliver up. The kingdom. When Christ comes at his second advent, in order for him to deliver up the kingdom, the kingdom has got to be here first, correct? Whatever application, whatever phase of that kingdom you understand, that kingdom's got to be in existence before he gets here. And when he comes the second time, he will deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Now listen, at that point we do understand what's laid out in Revelation 20, that the Lord will defeat the beast, the false prophet, and the devil in the end, and they shall be cast alive into the lake of fire. What is he doing until that time? What is Christ doing right now until the time that he comes back and he defeats all wickedness and all power against him? Notice verse 25. For he must reign till, not when. You notice that word's not, it's not when. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. He, he's in the process of reigning right now. He is in the process of ruling right now. You say, well, ah, not everybody on earth is doing what he wants them to do. He's still in charge. My children don't always do what I tell them to do. They don't always do what I like for them to do, but I'm still the father of the home, and as long as my wife lets me, I'm in charge. Now, I have a question about all of this as well. Uh, here's another question. <clears throat> when Christ comes back, uh, he's supposed to establish this thousand-year reign. All of his people are... are I'm a, I'm going to have to speak to you half in the, in the language of Ashdod for a moment. Are, are you okay with that? When Christ comes back and all of his people that have accepted him and allowed him to save them. Just listen. Just hold on. All of his people that have allowed him to, to, to save them are going to be resurrected in glorified bodies. And they're going to reign with him while he sits on this throne. And at that point, he will establish a thousand years of complete peace on the earth. You know, they always run to at least two scriptures. The lion and the lamb will lay down together. And then there's another one where they'll beat their swords into plowshares. And, and all peace will be established. All war will be gone. Peace will be established. Now, <clears throat> while Christ is reigning, and while his glorified saints are reigning with him, there's still activity on the earth. Because, see, when he had this split rapture 
and the church went out first, the unsaved were still left down here in human form. You humans that don't accept Christ will be left here, and you'll live through the thousand-year reign, and you'll marry, and you'll bear children. And some of those children will be saved, and some of them won't. Here's my, here's my question. He's going to reign in peace. He's going to bring swift judgment and justice to every infraction that happens on this earth. Well, if the earth is at peace, who needs a judge? When, when my wife and I are at peace, or when she and the children are at peace, she doesn't need anybody to step in between her and the children and sort things out. When me and my wife are not arguing, we don't need anybody to step in and sort things out. Christ is reigning in pure righteousness and in complete peace. Where is trouble going to come from to start with? They say, well, it's going to come from, it's going to come from people because they still have a sinful nature and they're still going to fall. And when Satan is loosed in the end, he's still going to be able to deceive these people who are living under the perfect reign of Christ. If they're living under this perfect reign of Christ and they see how perfect his reign is, what will promote them to disobey his rule? I mean, what's our problem now? Don't we look out in the world around us and we see injustice on a regular basis? Don't we see heartache and trouble on a regular basis right now? And what's the very question then that people ask? If there's a God, why does this happen? They'll be before His throne at that time, and they'll see there is a God, and they're still not going to accept Him. If they're not going to accept Him during His thousand years reign of pure peace, what makes you think they'll accept Him now? If they won't accept the God they can see, what makes you think they're going to accept the God they cannot see? In other words, salvation then ultimately is not because I convinced you there's a God you cannot see, but it's because there's a God you cannot see lives in you. I had a, I had a thought earlier this week. Well, more than one, but at least one thought earlier this week. I had not read this, this comment by Mr. Hodge uh, concerning the idea of what may happen in the future may not be exactly what we think it is now. And what, what propelled that thought was, you, you watch the news, right? You know things are uh, sort of an, an upheaval in our nation right now. Um, and right now we are being... Uh, inundated with the idea that if you don't take this jab, you're not going to be able to buy and sell in the public square. Uh, I'm just so, I just can't tell you how thankful I am that Hollywood celebrities and athletes and those rich and popular among us have come out and said that 
if you're unvaccinated, you can't be my friend. I just, I'm heartbroken. Why? Johnny Tyler, does this mean we're not friends? Some of y'all ain't going to get that. Don't worry about it. Uh, And then the thought had occurred to me, you know, that phrase sounds awful familiar, doesn't it? We're told in the Bible on about four or five different instances that there's a situation that arises, and unless you receive this mark, you can't buy or sell. You know that mark of the beast that's outlined here in the Bible? So, as I've been studying on this, I decided, you know what? Let me Google that. And I almost I almost started to invite y'all to do that this morning. I know most of you have got your phones out anyways, reading your Bibles. Google Mark of the Beast. There we go. If you Google Mark of the Beast, on Wednesday at least, this is what it said. It's, it's kind of changed between Wednesday and now. I guess search results change based on how many people hit a particular site in a given period. And the most people that hit a site, that's the most popular. I I think that's basically how it works. But anyways, by Wednesday, if you Googled Mark of the Beast, the very first thing that came up was a a church down, I believe it was in Florida, had posted on their church billboard, get the vaccine. And it was vandalized by some people who said they came by and spray painted the vaccine is the Mark of the Beast. That was the first Result. The second result was a Wikipedia encyclopedia entry that simply had some information on the mark of the beast. Outside of that, the next ten occurrences of this phrase, mark of the beast, about seven of them had references to Christian pastors coming out now saying, no, the vaccine is not the mark of the beast. No, the vaccine is not the mark of the beast. And I thought, boy, this is extremely interesting to me. This is intriguing to me. I don't think the vaccine is the mark of the beast, okay? I don't think those of you who have been vaccinated, shot, stabbed, or whatever it is you've been, I don't think you're dying and going to hell. I do think the attitude is the same. I think the attitude behind it is the same. I think the attitude that you find in the Scriptures when the political powers rise up and say, unless you do this, you cannot do that, I think it's exactly the same. That's what Nebuchadnezzar said. When Nebuchadnezzar built this great image in the book of Daniel, he told everybody, at the time that you hear the sound of all this music playing, bow down and worship the golden image. If you won't bow down, you'll be cast alive into a burning fire furnace. It's the same principle displayed in different areas and in different ways throughout society. It's the same thing. So whether it's a golden statue or whether it's a political power, it doesn't matter. It all came, comes from the same point, the influence of Satan on human beings. That unless you do exactly what we say, you will die and go to hell. And then something hit me. We've got this mark of the beast over here saying, you're going to serve us or else. You know, you're going to accept me or I'm going to send you to hell. Catch it? 
Can you imagine a man walking up to a woman saying, I'd like to marry you. If you don't marry me, I'm going to kill you. Well, that's just so loving and kind, isn't it? A lot of the things that people believe don't make any sense anymore when you kind of take the fluff off of them. Jesus is not going to beg anybody to serve or worship Him. God puts His Holy Spirit in a person and it draws them to Him. It's an irresistible grace. It is a removing of the blindfold. It is a removing of the scales off the eyes to allow somebody to truly see who and what God is. And with the Spirit of God living in a person, His Spirit then bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. It is not a cooperation. It is a single operation. It is an immediate operation. Immediate means without a mediator. God doesn't need somebody in between Him and the sinner to convince the sinner His Holy Spirit is sufficient and enough. So when you come to the concepts of of Revelation, specifically Revelation 20 that that we've been kind of thinking about over the last few weeks, and and when I say thinking about, I'm serious about that. I'm, I'm trying to present reasonable arguments to you. I don't know the future. Do you? You don't know the future? I don't know. God's the only one that knows the future. And even when he walked this planet, he told his disciples, it is not to you to know the future. And then there's that phrase, nor to the son of man. Y'all have been, is that phrase ever kind of tricked y'all up a little bit? The, the, The son of man doesn't even know. Well, how does Christ not know the future? Christ in his humanity did not know the future. Christ in his deity knew all the future. When we read what is laid out here for us, the unfolding of what events may fall on this earth are not to terrify us. They are to encourage us. They are to strengthen us. They are to help us and assist us along the way. That regardless of what happens either with the end of the world or with this pathetic virus that we've got now, we know one thing that Revelation teaches us. Babylon is fallen. It's over with. Can you imagine a line of Christians as they go to the gallows or they go to the firing squad or they go to, you know, to be beheaded, singing To the wicked powers around them, Babylon is fallen. We laugh at you, Babylon. Babylon is fallen. That there's not a thing you can do to us on this earth to take away from us our inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, fadeth not away, and is reserved in heaven for us. In Revelation 20, there is um, a situation that occurs. 
John sees some thrones. He sees people sitting on these thrones. He sees the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Christ. And it says here in uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, the last phrase is, they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. You ever pondered what the phrase the first resurrection means? This is where the idea of a, a split rapture or a split resurrection comes from. Uh, you'll have this secret, quiet rapture of people, those who've allowed God to save them, those who've permitted Him to work. Uh, they'll be in a moment vanished. And those disobedient, unsaved people be left down here wondering what happened to half the human race. Y'all heard, have y'all heard that? That's that, uh, that's Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series, all those movies that have come out now, uh, or come out in the 90s and somewhat. Um, this is the first resurrection, then all these people, they're gone. That'll be the first resurrection. Verse 5 says, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Uh, I'd like to offer to you at least some reasonable uh, alternatives uh, to this first resurrection, second death thing. It's something that's going to occur years in the future. First off, I'd like for you to notice verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. To me, that verse is unmistakable. The first resurrection delivers you from the second death. The first resurrection delivers you from the second death. John's emphasis here is not on the fact of we need to get in here and be part of this, this resurrection. His emphasis is on the, fact, on the fact of the power of that first resurrection. The effectualness of that first resurrection. Now, if you'd like to know what the second death is, the Bible explains that. Aren't you glad? Okay. <clears throat> you have here, uh, let's back up to 19 and 20. We want to read several verses together with this. Uh, Revelation 19 and verse 20. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he had deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Chapter 20 and verse 14. 
and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Chapter 21 and verse 8. Chapter 21 verse 8 says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, this uh, which is the second death. Has, has, has John put enough scriptures before us to let us know that the second death is eternal separation from God in hell? That's the conclusion I gather from that. How about y'all? That's a, that's a reasonable interpretation of that scripture. The second death will be when all the wicked and all sin and all death and all hell is cast alive into the burning fiery furnace, into this burning lake of fire, and they shall be tormented forever and ever for all eternity. So you have a first resurrection, you have a second death. When I was growing up, I was taught this phrase, I was taught this concept. If you're born of the Spirit of God, you shall have two births. You're born of your parents. You're born of God. In being born of God, you shall have only one death. If you're born twice, you'll die once. But if you're only born in this world and not born of God, you'll have one birth of your parents and you'll have two deaths. Catch that? I didn't. Did I, did I confuse y'all in that? So, so there's a concept of people having two deaths and one birth, and some people having two births and one death. Obviously, we understand that when, when God told Adam in Genesis, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, we understand that the Bible tells us that when Adam sinned, he ushered death into this world. And in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it tells us, wherefore is by one man... Sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, and for that, all have sinned. Death was ushered into this world by the disobedience of Adam. Had Adam not disobeyed, death would not have been a part of our existence. I don't know how we would have gone from the Garden of Eden to God's throne had there been no death. The Bible doesn't tell us. In other words, preacher, what would it have been like if it wasn't like what it was? I don't know. But we do know this, that when Adam sinned, death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. There, right there, Adam plunged himself and all his posterity into a perpetual state of dying. I heard a preacher say not too long ago uh, that when he was ordained and the charge was given to him uh, at his ordination. He said, all of us have learned, as preachers, have learned a lot of things uh, trying to pastor people. There's a lot of things that weren't covered in my charge that I've had to deal with in pastoring people. Uh, 
He said, the one thing I did not anticipate was the amount of funerals I would have to perform. At some point in my life, at some point in the life of a lot of pastors, the amount of funerals that we have to perform is going to exceed the amount of baptisms and the amount of marriages. It's just the way it is. Not everybody's going to get married. Not everybody's going to have children. But the ratio of one-to-one of death to birth in this world has always been and it will always be. So the Bible, go back to 1 Corinthians 15. The Bible then lays out this pattern here that we need to recognize and notice. In in the Old Testament, we, we speak of people like Moses and Abraham and Joshua as types and shadows of Christ. In other words, you look at the life of this person and there are a lot of parallels that are drawn to the life of Christ. But really in the Scriptures, and, and, and that, is a, that is a good thing to do, but in the Scriptures there's only one person who really is said to be a type of Christ. And that's Adam. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 that we read from a while ago says, Wherefore is by one man sin and in the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. He said, um, Paul goes on to say that where there is no law, there really is no punishment for sin. He says, though, in, in Romans 5, about verse 14, he says, However, death reigned from Adam unto Moses, even on them who had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. In other words, you have not sinned in the same way that Adam did. He said, nevertheless, death reigned upon everybody. Even infant children who die, die because of sin. That, that's why they die. I don't see why people don't get this. If infant children are pure and perfect, holy and sinless, they don't die. That is the very definition of people in heaven. They are holy. They are sinless. People in heaven don't die. Jesus would not have died had He not been made sin for us. So when death reigns and where death exists, death exists where sin is. They're bosom buddies. They walk hand in hand through the rest of the course of human existence. But Paul goes on to say there in Romans 5, he said, even if they not sin after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who was the figure of him that was to come. The same way that Adam partook of the fruit and disobeyed God and brought sin into this world and thereby condemning all of humanity, those he represented, to a life of sin, when Jesus Christ came into this world and obeyed the law of God and went to the cross and suffered for us, His righteousness was placed on all those He represented. Nobody asked you if you accepted Adam's sin. You're just born with it. It's something given to you by birth. Therefore, when we say 
that salvation is by grace and not of your works, not of your effort. We say that salvation is something because of what Christ did. It is given to you by birth. It's really not any more difficult than that. A lot of theologians want to get up here and huff and puff and blow a bunch of steam to make themselves look intelligent and overeducated. But I, I kind of agree with, with what a preacher once said one time. You've been educated beyond your ability. It's really not any more difficult than that. What Christ did, He did for the people He represented. And if you don't want to take the work of Christ in the same manner that you take the work of Adam, you can't really have either one of them because it says here specifically, Adam was a figure of him to come. That this is not something we're making up. This is not something we're speculating on. This is a fact given to us by God's Word. So have you ever noticed, when you read, y'all are still in 1 Corinthians 15, right? I ain't forgot you. But have you ever noticed when you read in Genesis about the generations of Adam, that Adam lived so many years, he begat sons and daughters, and Adam died. And Adam begat this person, uh, Abel, and he begat Cain, and they lived so many years, and they died. What's the phrase that is repeated over and over and over in the book of Genesis? And they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. What do you think they're trying, God's trying to get across to us? They died. But when you read the genealogy of Jesus, it goes forward in Matthew to Abraham. It goes backward in Luke to Adam. Have you ever noticed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew and Luke that never once does it say, and they died? It just simply says somebody begat somebody, and this person begat somebody, and this person begat somebody, and this they begat, and they begat, and they begat, and they begat, and they begat. No mention of death at all. It's a living genealogy. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 20. But now was Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man at his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward they that are his or Christ's at his coming. I'd like you to notice verse 45 in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 45 says, And so it is written, The first man Adam was made a living soul. Sure he was. God formed him of the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. But what does it go on to say? The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Did you notice the phrase that's used here? Listen. The first man Adam and the last Adam. You got that? That would be important. If you were writing notes, you would want to write that down. The first Adam was a man. The last Adam was a, a quickening spirit. Notice it doesn't say the second Adam. Not yet. Not yet. In this verse, there's a first Adam that did one thing, and there's a last Adam who did something else. 
or who was something else. He is a quickening spirit. Notice that Adam, Adam in the Garden of Eden was not called a quickening spirit. He's just a living being. You are not a quickening spirit, is I guess is what we're getting at. It's the last Adam that's the quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not, <clears throat> back up. Howbeit, that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural. Afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthly, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also which are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. We're creeping now into this concept now of two different births. You and I have an, have an earthly image. You are a house of clay. And just like all places of earthly clay on this earth, they deteriorate, they erode, they wash away, they become less and less, till sometimes they disappear. I hate hearing about all the constant deaths. Not only from this virus, but deaths as a whole. It doesn't matter what it is. Be it cancer. Be it murder. Be it self-inflicted. I hate hearing of all of them. I wish we wouldn't overemphasize the importance of one dead to the exclusion of another. Because though someone in my family may not have died of one particular disease, some of them have died of another. It doesn't make any person's death any more uh, important or any less impactful if they don't die the right way. Death is what it is. It's just death. It's a separation. It's a removal of a person from one existence or one influence to somewhere else. Here he says, he's laying out to us then, we as God's people that not only have borne the earthy, that has deteriorated and has decayed and will continue to deteriorate and continue to decay until it is no more. We shall, by God's grace, bear the image of the heavenly, which is something that is incorruptible, something that is undefiled, something that never dies. And we will bear that. We will not bear that because we allowed God to save us. We will bear that because God is our Father and through the new birth, his grace is given to us. Now, you've got this concept here of this of this death in Adam. And you have this concept here of this life in Christ. 
And yet the Bible in Revelation talks about this first resurrection. Turn with me. Uh, just, well, let's turn to John to start with. Because really when you're thinking about this, you can go... You can go in several different directions, not because we don't know what we're talking about. Keep in mind, um, <clears throat> I try to think about this. I offer you these explanations, not necessarily because I don't know what I'm talking about, but because I like the phrase that the Bible is simply profound, but it's profoundly simple. The Bible is written in such a manner that a small child can pick it up and they can read Noah's Flood and Daniel in the Den of Lions and Samson in the Lion and David and Goliath. And they can read these stories, the three Hebrew children, and they can get something out of it. And at the same time, someone who has studied the Bible their entire life can go over there and read about Ezekiel's wheel in a wheel and talk about these angels with four faces that fly this way and the other and look at it and say, what in the world is God talking about? It is profoundly simple and yet simply profound at the same time. Um, we, under, we understand what, what resurrection means, right? Resurrection is the giving of life to something or someone that was previously dead. Uh, in John chapter 5, this is laid out for us. Side by side. This concept of understanding not only an earthly resurrection, but a heavenly resurrection that we call the new birth. In John chapter 5, if you begin reading with verse 24, you read all the way down through verse 29. Jesus talks about two different resurrections, actually. He says in verse, 20, verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, <clears throat> when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Did you notice in there, the operative phrase in there is that the hour is coming, and now is. Catch this, right in the middle of the verse. The hour is coming, and now is. In other words, this is an event that is a continual event. This is an ongoing event. It's coming, and it even now is. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Uh, Paul said in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, ah, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Friends, the unsaved world is not dead in their ignorance. They're not deaf in their sins. They're dead in their sins. What do people not understand about this is what I want to know. What do people not understand about the concept of dead? You dead sinners out there, just open your ears and open your eyes. Why don't they? Why didn't Stevie Wonder just open his eyes and stop being ignorantly blind? Is he blind because he's stubborn, hard-headed, hard-hearted, and refuses to listen? No, he's blind because something within his eyesight is disconnected and it's dead. It doesn't work. You pull some batteries out of the thermostat this morning, didn't you? Are they dead or alive? They're dead, 
well, just encourage them to recharge. I digress. And then Jesus says, marvel not at this. He says, marvel not at this, verse 28, <clears throat> for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. He's equating those who are dead in sin with those who are dead in the graves. He's equating them with this in the fact that those that are in their graves, you and I can do no more with them than those that are dead in their sins. He says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good in the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. Notice there's no break in that sentence. There is not a resurrection of the good at one point and a thousand years later a resurrection of the dead. It's a resurrection at the same time. But think about this. John had said in Revelation 20, he said, uh, Blessed are they that have part in the first resurrection, on whom the second death hath no power and no authority. So we understand that if we were to label the second death and the first death, the first death would be death and sin. Everybody died in Adam. The second death is death and hell. Y'all kind of y'all accept that uh, explanation of this. So then this first resurrection, I've just read to you a first resurrection, a plausible explanation for a first resurrection, have I not? As a matter of fact, I'll give you one more. John chapter 6. Y'all should know this verse as well. John chapter 6, verse 37. John 6.37 says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. He's getting everything he deserves. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. The him that's going to come to Christ are the all that are given to Christ. It's not that difficult. Notice this, verse 38. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, and this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all, 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 which he hath given, given me. I should lose nothing, nothing, nothing. But shall, uh, read with me, raise it up, what? Again, at the last day. If something's got to be raised up again, it means it had to be raised up the first time. You would not say that a government went out to a flat piece of land and built again a city. The city's not there, right? But you would say that the government went into an impoverished or neglected or ghost town part of the city, and we use this phrase as well, they resurrected the city. Something that was there was brought to life again. We use that in a, a sort of a natural term, do we not? Somebody's going to resurrect a land or a portion or something. A, a ball team that goes into the gutter gets a new coach and they're resurrected to their former glory. 
I've already given you one possible resurrection. Let me give you another one. Isaiah, and this is this actually to me is, is quite fascinating. I I will not uh, hang my hat so heavy um, on on this one as I will the next one I'm going to give to you. Now, keep in mind Isaiah 26. This is the prophet writing to the nation of Israel. Isaiah 26, verse 19. He says, Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Isn't that an interesting way of saying something? He's telling the nation of Israel that there's going to come a time when thy dead men shall live. And when are they going to live? They are going to live together with my dead body. Did you catch that? Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Keep in mind also, Daniel chapter 12, it's in that mysterious portion of Bible prophecy located after Daniel chapter 7. Some heavy reading in this book. But just listen to the curiosity of words that are laid out here. And at that time, this is Daniel 12, verse 1. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting Contempt. Hmm. That sounds familiar. People written in a book. Rising to everlasting life and contempt. But it also said in verse 2 that there was a time of trouble as never such before. This is quite peculiar, isn't it? Let me give you one more. Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. Let me show you a second resurrection here. It kind of reminds me of a lot of what was just said before us. Matthew 27. You found it? You remember Jesus? You remember Jesus, right? You remember Jesus was crucified, right? What happened when Jesus was crucified? Verse 50 of Matthew 27. Or verse 51. It says, Behold the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. The earth did quake and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after His resurrection. What? There was a time that the worship of God 
was changed. It was changed from Old Testament animal sacrifices to New Testament worship of Christ. There was a time when that veil between the Holy of Holies and the people that used to separate them from being able to come near their God, that veil was ripped. And we as God's people were allowed to come in and worship with God by ourselves. Sounds like a renovating process, doesn't it? Uh, by the way, did you ever catch the time? Did you ever catch the time when Jesus told the disciples, uh, he, he told those money changers when He chased them out of the temple, He says, My Father's house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Remember that? When Jesus overlooked Jerusalem that, one, that last time, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent thee, how oft would I have gathered thy children unto me as a hen doth gather her chickens, but thou wouldest not. And he says unto them, Behold, thy house is left unto thee desolate. You remember? What changed? I thought the temple was God's house, and now he gives it to Israel and he says, it's Now it's your house. Something had changed in the process in the way that Israel was relating to God. And God was withdrawing from them little by little so that the things that belong to God now in the New Testament are often called the Jews' feast of the Passover. And it wasn't the Jews' feast. It was God's feast. But they had so muddied it and so maligned it and so destroyed it that God was drawing away from them little by little so that at the end of A.D. 70, when God ransacked Jerusalem by Titus, the Roman army, and destroyed the temple, the church of God was left on this earth to journey out into the world by themselves. Is that reasonable? Is that a reasonable resurrection? In my mind it is. But I'm going to give you one more. And I think this one kind of holds a lot more water than any of the rest of them. See, what I'm trying to give you is reasonable explanations and reasonable, uh, plausible understanding that the resurrection that's talked about in Revelation 20 is not something a thousand years in the future or 10,000 years in the future. Listen, Jewish rabbis had this thought. Old rabbinical writings had this thought that since God in Genesis created the world in six days and a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day, then probably what's going to happen is there's going to be 6,000 years of human history, and at the end of that 6,000 years, the 7,000th year will begin the thousand-year reign. You know, he created the world in six days, and he rested on the seventh, so he's going to allow the world to exist for 6,000 years and rest on the seventh. Isn't that fascinating? But it's just speculation. That's all it is, is speculation. Not a drop of, of truth to it in the New Testament anyway. But keep in mind, he says, Blessed and holy are they that have part in the first resurrection on whom the second death hath no power. There's something even greater in your new birth. Your new birth is a product of it. The new birth does not happen willy-nilly just because. 
There's something else that is the basis and the producer of your new birth. The Bible here says that these men came out of the graves after his resurrection. Where did they go is what I want to know. What did they do? What happened to these people? You remember when John, uh, when, when, when Lazarus died uh, in John 11? And Jesus came to Lazarus' tomb and he said, roll away the stone. And they said, Lord, he, he's, he's been dead four days. Behold, he stinks. And Jesus told uh, Mary and Martha, he says, thy brother shall live again. They said, we know he shall live again at the resurrection. What did Jesus say? He said, I am the resurrection. Even though in our life the resurrection will be a point in time, the resurrection technically is not a point in time. It's a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. When He stood before Lazarus' grave, He cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! Now, Lazarus came forth to die again. Death had power on Him again years later. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and put your sins away and put my sins away and put the sins away of all the elect family, that was it. The second death, being separated in hell, has no more power on the people of God. He has paid sufficient for their sins. The old spiritual is, were you there? when they crucified my Lord. Well, were you? Well, you weren't standing there, but were you not there in representation? Did He not represent you when He died upon the cross? Were you there when he laid, when they laid His body in the tomb? Did He not represent you going into that tomb? Yes, you were. Were you there when He rose again from the dead? Yes, you were. In representation, Jesus Christ rose for you. And I submit that the resurrection of Christ is a sufficient enough first resurrection that I don't care about anything else. Because haven't you noticed that the number first a lot of times means premier or chief? We do things like Historical order. I got up this morning. First thing I did was brush my teeth. Second thing I did was eat breakfast. Third thing I did was get dressed. Fourth thing I did was come to church. We did those four things in no particular real order. I could have gotten up and gotten dressed first and then ate breakfast and then brushed my teeth. Or, I, you know, they were just an order of occurrence. They were not an order of importance. His is the first resurrection. It is the most important resurrection there's ever been. Because in 1 Corinthians 15 that we read from earlier, it said that He is the first fruits of them that slept. Did you catch that phrase there? That's 1 Corinthians 15. He's the first fruits of them that slept. If you go back to the Old Testament and you read about the first fruits harvest, when, when it was time for harvest, they, they collect the first fruits that they gathered and they bring them to God. 
And if God accepted that offering and accepted that sacrifice, then the harvest itself was accepted and the harvest was holy and the harvest was plentiful. Did God accept the sacrifice of Christ when He went back to heaven? Then if He accepted Christ, the harvest is ready. The harvest is plentiful. You are the harvest. His people. This is not an option. This is what Christ has done when He ascended back to heaven, sat down at the right hand of God. God accepted His sacrifice and in the place accepted you. And blessed and holy are you that have part in that first resurrection when Christ Himself came out of the grave, when Christ Himself was resurrected by the Spirit of God, when Christ Himself came out victorious over death, hell, and the grave, the very first person to ever come out, body, soul, and spirit, to ascend to heaven to die no more. Blessed and holy are we who have part in that first resurrection. And then he goes on to say, the rest of the dead live not until that thousand years was over. It's the general consensus that the rest of the dead just simply speaks to those who are the non-elect people, the wicked of this world, the agents of Satan. They'll never live. They think they're living now. They'll never live. Revelation 20 wraps up with not a plea for sinners to accept Christ. Really, Revelation 20 wraps up with this glorious declaration of separation. That one day, God will separate His people from the wicked of this world, and He will separate His people from sin. And I don't know about y'all, but that right there is probably one of the most glorious teachings that Christ could have reminded us of. Not that we would be separated from the wicked around us. Not that we would be separated from troubles. And not that we would be separated from trials. But that we ourselves would be separated from the sin within us. See, when He died on the cross, He separated us from the penalty of sin. Sin's not going to be charged to us. When the Holy Spirit regenerates us, it separates us from the power of sin. You don't often have to sin, by the way. Did you know that? The devil made me do it. God doesn't believe you, and I don't either. But we're not glorified yet. Romans 8.28, 8.29 says, For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. Moreover, whom He called, then He also justified. And whom He justified, or whom He foreknew, then He also called. And whom He called, then He also justified. And whom He justified, then He also glorified. You catch that? Your salvation is not the fact that God just called you. Your salvation is not the fact that Jesus just died for you. Your salvation ultimately is to be brought to heaven and to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's when salvation will be completed. And when you get to heaven, the Holy Spirit regenerated you and separated you from the power of sin. Christ died for you and separated you from the penalty of sin. When you get to heaven, you will be forever separated from the presence of sin. There will be no more sin in you and no sin in anybody else. And heaven will be a great and glorious world where no any of mine will ever enter and no friend of mine will ever leave. Blessed are we who have part in that first resurrection. Thank you for your good, patient attention this morning.